0: How do we get to the point where people can talk to each other? The only place where I've really seen that happen is in Bitcoin. So to me, like the social value of Bitcoin is is massive because here we're forced to, to talk to each other.
1: Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is l-e-d-g-e-r.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the U.S. who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it is Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they've provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is com forward slash Peter.
2: We're obviously going to talk about climate stuff.
1: Right.
2: Um, but before we get into that, firstly, hello, Margot.
0: Hello.
2: Thank you for coming in for this. Oh,
0: thank you. Now, do you like Pete or Peter?
2: I prefer Peter. Okay, Peter. But I, but I, don't, I don't get stressed about it.
0: Right. Peter is good.
2: And are you Margot or Maggie? Ah, uh, Margot. Marge?
0: No, definitely not Marge. Some people call me Margot. I think that's like the Swedish way of saying it or something. Really? Yeah, like they don't, they, the T isn't silent for them. But oh. the T is silent for me.
2: You're a Margot.
0: Margot. I
2: can, I can handle that. Um, Troy, after our interview, mm-hmm. we sat down, he was like, you have to talk to Margot. You have to talk to Margot. Just get Margot <laughs> on the show. And then I spoke to David Zell, and David Zell was like, you have to talk to Margot. You've got to get her on the show.
0: And You're too nice.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to get into some of the climate stuff, which yeah. is a tricky area in the world of Bitcoin. But before we get into that, I actually want to talk a little bit more about your article first. Oh, yeah. Because it, uh, it's very interesting. Um, and I want to hear a little bit about Occupy, because... Yeah. Obviously, you got involved in yeah. Occupy, and it's something me and Danny have been talking about a lot. Uh, I'm interested in the idea. I'm a uh, essentially a statist because I believe in democracy, <laughs> and government. Although I accept it's completely failing at the yeah, moment, yeah. but uh, I struggle with ideas around having no structure. So we've been right. uh, there's a an article that Lane Rettig gave us called um, "The Tyranny of Structurelessness," which was fascinating. Interesting, yeah. And we've also spent a lot of time looking at Occupy and why it failed. Oh,
0: yeah. Let's talk about that.
2: Well, can you tell me how you got involved in it or why you got involved in it?
0: Yeah. So I was you know, in my 20s and I was upset about the financial crisis, of course. And I saw that this was happening and I wanted to be part of it. I've always... Been somebody who likes to go out and protest, so it's like this is great. Let's go protest. And but the thing is, is that I have like technical skills too, and I I had a background in in journalism, like writing for art magazines and pet magazines <laughs> in undergrad, and I had some camera equipment because I was sort of dappling in filmmaking at the time, just pursuing various interests. And I thought, you know. Anyone can be a protester, but not everyone can edit video. Not everyone can stand in front of a camera and do reporting. And I liked journalism too. So I decided I'll just show up and participate as a guerrilla journalist. (laughs) And so I was there every single day at Occupy Los Angeles, which was a a fairly uh, big protest, uh, alongside the the main Occupy Wall Street protest at Ducati Park. And I was there every day and every night I would file a report and I would wander around interviewing people. And one of my goals was to try to show a different perspective than what you see on television. And I think, you know, coming from the Bitcoin space, like, we know what that's like with all the FUD. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. we know how we get painted a certain way. And I felt that the people who were going to these protests weren't really getting uh, getting uh, the best uh, light in in terms of like getting good questions and the people that they were selecting for interviews. So I showed up and I started interviewing people, trying to find like the intelligent people. And I I did. I mean, I found like some really great people and I would ask them just a series of questions and uh, just talk about like what was going on, the various protests. And so I got to see over the entire period the progression and the shift in how uh, the the occupation was going and the the what they were trying to accomplish and it was it was incredibly uh, it was like one of the the most important experiences i've had in my life because i got to see people really try to come together and form a community and do things that our society and our officials were neglecting to do to take care of each each other. And they were trying to figure out how to do that while occupying a park, you know, and without any resources. So it was phenomenal. And, but of course it wasn't perfect and there were problems. And of course the city was also trying to undermine it too because they didn't want them there. So there was, there was a, a lot uh, of conflict because they're like put, taking the unhoused or homeless people and moving them to the park and basically making the occupiers responsible for them. So now like they had to take care of them. So they transitioned from being there like as an economic protest to then being like a, a way of like how do we take care of each other? And so I think that to me was the most important thing that it was an experience, an experiment in in a new way of having community with people.
2: Oh, hold on, so. So, the city was moving homeless people into the park yes. during the protest. Was that a, a strategic decision by them to try and undermine the protest?
0: Yes, because in Los Angeles, most of the in-house community lives in Skid Row. Yep. And Skid Row is, has been there my entire life, and uh, you, you kind of know where it is. And they're, they're, they're only allowed to have their tents up until like, maybe like six in the morning. And then they have to unpack, they have to like, pack everything up and move out of the way because there's business going on and they're not allowed to be there during the daytime. And there's also all, you know, these criminal, criminal laws against homelessness in the city. Like, you can't sleep in certain areas and stuff. So the police were telling them, hey, if you go over to City Hall, you can sleep there. You can stay there all day long. You just set up your tent. It's fine. So they started telling the unhoused to to go over there and to be and to move in with the protest. Now, the, the protesters themselves, like obviously they welcomed them. And a lot of the in-house community got involved with the activism there. And their stories were really important to be heard as well. But still, there were, you know, there were a lot of problems. And and unfortunately, the in community has a lot of mental health issues, and there's drug addiction. Of course, like, when you're literally living on the street with nothing and you're, you're practically invisible, I mean, society just casts you away. Of course, you're going to suffer, right? So the occupiers had to figure out, how do we deal with that? And one of the, the moments that really stands out for me was that there was somebody there at the occupation who was dealing with drug addiction. And the community came together, and they were like, how do we solve this? What do we do? How do we provide support for them? And it was just, you know, like a group of 20 or so people just sort of standing in a circle, like, talking this over. How do we provide for them? How do we take care of them? And to me, that was the first time I had seen people, you know, my own age or maybe a little older, like, really trying to solve these social issues and realizing that we had so many social issues in the United States have been, that have been ignored by our, our leadership, by our politicians. And in a way, it was like, it was really unfair for them because they were there to protest the banks, right? That was the protest, like Wall Street. Uh, the the fact that all these homes had been illegally foreclosed on, the fact that the banks got bailed out, but people didn't get bailed out. And all of this was under the Obama administration, right? This was a Democrat in office. And they were really forced to deal with like this, this underlining social issue that, has gone progressively worse. I would say in the United States, like uh, with like the fentanyl and and um, like the the prescription drug addiction that has has moved through the country and and it was uh, it was really hard for them to do that, but but it but no one else was doing it, and they and and that's really what what Occupy became in a way was this like how do we have like a new society, a caring society.
2: The, the Occupy movement was ultimately seen as something that failed to actually right. achieve anything. Mm-hmm. And from my research, it seems to be that there was two primary issues, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, sure. One was a uh, an a standout mission that people could get behind. Uh, it kind of lacked a... Well, like I say, just a mission. And also, there was like a lack of structure, mm-hmm. which is something that, that I'm interested in because whether it's the podcast or whether it's the football team or whether yeah. it's society or it's my family. Yeah. I, f- I always feel that you need structure and hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I think flat structures usually tend to fail.
0: Mm. Um,
2: but please tell me from your side. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: So, absolutely, Occupy was considered a leaderless movement or it was like, it was either a leaderless movement or we were all leaders. That was, that was the messaging. And... Of course, like this was also something very new that people had to figure out. And they had these Democratic the assemblies or like public assemblies, citizen assemblies that would happen every night. And they would try to vote on things. And it, it became very difficult to do because they wanted to do it by consensus. So everybody had to agree. Like if they wanted to go on an action, like go do a march, they, everyone who was there at the assembly had to agree on it. And oftentimes there was always one person who would completely negate it, and they would they would do this thing where like they would put their arms like that, and that meant like no, no, I don't I don't agree with this, and so it became gridlocked. And after a while, there were like not a lot of protests happening, and I and I would like I remember walking around being like counting the tents, like well, there's 200 tents here, but there's like eight people that are going to go on a march, so like what's going on? So yeah, in a way like. I think the problem is that you can have low hierarchies, right? You can. I think that that's okay. But consensus, to me, is not something that's good if you want to do things immediately. Consensus is something that takes time. And in a way that's good, like, you need consensus on big issues. You're going to need to work it out. You're going to need to talk about it. And you're going to have arguments, and you're going to have to persuade each other. And then maybe some, at some point, some people just absolutely don't agree. And then you need to rearrange your society, right? That's like the ideal look at consensus. And there's, uh, in, in the anthropological record, that's basically how some of these like low hierarchy societies worked. But at Occupy, you couldn't do that because you needed to go on an action tomorrow. And you might be evicted in the next three days, right? You, you're living like day to day of like, when are we gonna get evicted? When are we gonna get evicted? and what's going to happen when we, we get evicted. Right. So that was a problem. And I, and I think that I remember thinking like, this doesn't work <laughs> and these assemblies don't work. And I never participated in them because I wanted to be there sort of as an, an, an observer, even though obviously I was like, you know, on mission with what they were doing. And I, and I was in, completely sympathetic and I was there because I really wanted to give uh, give them a fair chance in what they were doing, and let the public really see a different side. But I never participated in them, so I, me standing off on the side and watching it going, I could see and, and just being frustrated, like this doesn't work. Why are they doing this? You know. And actually, I think what works better, and you can still maintain a low hierarchy or no hierarchy. And this is something that comes out of the Extinction Rebellion, which you may be familiar with, yeah, I think yeah, from yeah. The UK, yeah. Okay, so Roger Hallam-
2: They're not popular.
0: They're not popular, right. Uh, But with some people, I guess, in the climate movement, they're very popular, though. Well, we can get into that. There's like lots of disagreement. But, okay, so Roger Hallam is one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion. So one of the things he suggested, actually, was don't have a massive group of people making a decision if you're going to do an action like that, an act of civil disobedience. Make it a small group, no more than six people. And you guys have to, like, basically all be on the same page, right? And you're going to decide, we're going to do this. And we are then, we're going to get arrested. Okay, and now we have a date. And now what we're going to do is just tell people what we're going to do. And we're going to get them to commit to our action and now let's have lots of small groups of people doing this
2: so kind of like cells
0: yeah yeah hmm. you know like like a node you know in a network right yeah. <laughs> everybody is working in a, in, a, in a small group in a decentralized way on the same goal and you you know a, each group comes up with their own action and then go out and do it and then go on a tour and t- and talk about it and to me i think that works a lot better because you can make decisions a lot faster, so that to me is a solution to the problems that they had at Occupy. Okay, in that regard, in terms of the hierarchies and the the gridlock, the 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 other to your other point about them not like really having like like a lot of points of like what was their goal, right? Yeah, that was to a certain degree that was a problem at at least like for Occupy Los Angeles, I remember asking them early on, like, give me a list of your demands. I want to share them. Well, okay. it, was,
2: it was the same for New York as well.
0: Yeah, and and they were like, okay, sure. Yeah, we're going to get them to you. Um, okay, a, day, a couple of days go by. Can I get your demands? <laughs> we're working on them. Okay, I never got them. I never got any. And I think that was part of the, the whole problem with the, the assemblies is that, how do you get everybody to agree to this demand? There were different groups of people showing up having different demands. Like, yeah, it started off as an economic protest against the banks. But then there were people who were upset about police brutality. And then there were people, you know, upset about... About, uh, you know, I don't know, like, you know, climate change, like we had some people come talk about climate change, you know, there were the people upset about, you know, housing, people upset about, you know, homeless crisis, whatever. And and all these people are coming in. People upset about the Fed, like, right, there were libertarians there who burnt dollar bills in front of me. It's the first time I'd ever seen <laughs> anybody build, burn money.
2: You spent a bit of time with Max Kaiser.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I've seen him now after, after Occupy burn money. But so now I'm like, whatever, but... That was the first time I saw people burn money. But, you know, so there, there were people, everybody has their own pet thing that they're working on or that they're fighting against. And you can't get all those people to agree on one set of demands.
2: Which is why you need leadership.
0: So you you that is one way. I think, again, like having smaller groups, having their own thing, and maybe coming together as a coalition works as well. I think that like, like a network, like an action network, I think that that also is, is a solution. There were people at Occupy who tried to be leaders or who like became leaders, but, but at the same time, they didn't have a lot of trust from people because they seemed like maybe they were being opportunistic, right? So there's a fine line there, I think, in these movements of like who's a leader and, and who isn't. Obviously, if you have someone like MLK as your leader, right, charismatic, ha- you know, on mission, you know, knows knows how to use words so eloquently. Right. And and can move people on a on a goal like that. That can actually work. Right. There's there's no I, I can't come in and tell you like. There's only one way to do something, right? There just isn't. There's always going to be multiple ways to do things.
2: Of course, but I think sometimes you have to recognize different people have different strengths. Yeah. There's so many analogies for this, but like, let's talk about a sports team. There's somebody who's good in goal because they're great at saving, but they can't they can't strike a ball. And there's somebody who's a great winger because they're fast and nippy and they can go around people. Uh, and I think that happens. Uh, you can extrapolate that to any. Anything that has a structure and say who who's a leader, mm-hmm. who's an organizer, you know. So you have those different, and, and leaders tend to have different qualities. They can uh, they can build momentum. They can yeah. stand at the front. They are maybe great with words or great with relationships. Um, and you can you can even extrapolate that to look at Bitcoin. Would you consider Bitcoin low hierarchy? Yeah. Yeah. So if Bitcoin is low hierarchy, but you still have the. The people who are the developers. Sure. You have the people who submit BIPs. Mm-hmm. You have the people who are seen as opinion leaders. The people who spread messages. You understand. There's no actual leader, mm-hmm. but there are definitely leaders in ideas. Right. And maybe you could consider the uh, the goal or the mission or the request to be like BIPs. Right. Like, what is it? What is it that you know? What are the uh, demands? Uh, but being an Occupy movement, for me, when you get into things like police brutality, which is obviously a super important issue, I don't think that was an Occupy issue. An Occup- Occupy was about runaway capitalism, mm-hmm. the abuse of the system by the connection between Wall Street and the White House. Uh, and I think that, it felt like me- to me, that should be the mission, something regarding runaway capitalism.
0: Yeah, so... It- it definitely was. Like that was the that was the sense of why people were there. But the, there was something that happened. The work there was like huge working class support at the beginning. Yep. And then it dwindled away. They stopped showing up. I interviewed a lot of people who would show up after work and they would stand out along the sidewalk with their signs and they're like, "Yeah, this is great. We're here. We support them." And like, halfway through that change that, like, the unions were coming out and they were doing their protests and they were really massive and exciting. And I still don't really understand the shift that happened. Either it went on too long or it just became too gridlocked in the decision-making. And and it turned off, Basically, the working class, and they were like, "This isn't really getting us anywhere," you know.
2: We've lost our houses.
0: Yeah, and these, and and here, here, these people are fighting over like some, you know, order of uh, operation of how to run the assembly or something like that, you know.
2: I mean, I think one, one, an important mission behind it should have been that people should have gone to jail for it.
0: Well, of course. <laughs> I mean,
2: there are people. I mean, one guy went to jail. I know one person went to jail. Yeah, but. Probably a lot more people should have gone to jail. That this was a huge crime committed against the not just the American people, the world.
0: Yeah, well, people are still upset in 2022. Like the whole GameStop thing, right? Yeah. I don't know if you have the uh, the Reddit subreddit around that, like washing bets it. and yeah. stuff. So I was I was on there, you know, reading all the posts, and it was phenomenal. Like it was literally <laughs> Occupy Wall Street online. And, p- and some people are a little cynical about it. They're like, ah, no, you know, they just were like trying to pump their bags. But no, really, like so many people posted on there. I was 14 when this happened and my parents lost their home. I'm doing this for them. Or like, you know, this happened. My 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 family lost all this money or they, my my dad lost his job and I'm still really pissed off at these and I'm going to get those hedgies, you know? And, and that was, uh, there was a huge, uh, proportion of the people involved in that who felt that way and who still do. And that was that was a point where I realized wow people are still angry. I you know 10 years on and they're still angry. This has not been resolved. And the fact that they're still angry and this has not been resolved I think is is a big indicator of why we have so much distrust in society in the United States right now, like institutional distrust, like everything that has happened over the pandemic with mandates and things like that. I think all of that goes back to the fact that the United States failed to protect the people from what had happened during the crisis. They saw that the banks got away with it. They're still in business. They're still doing risky speculation. These derivatives are still Happening in various ways, and even with related to climate change, like these carbon markets operate similar to, to derivative markets, right? So, they uh, they see that that they've been screwed, <laughs> and nobody is coming to save them. So, why would they trust? Why are they going to trust the pharmaceuticals? Why are they going to trust uh, the CDC? Why are they going to trust you know President Joe Biden, a Democrat, when a Democrat was in office after the financial crisis when they had a chance to to really bail out the public, and they didn't do it. So
2: they, they uh, bailed out the banks and recovered the economy
0: for the banks, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The, the The stock market was recovered, but not not really for people. The, the The jobs that came in after the recession were were lower paying jobs without less benef- you know, less benefits.
2: I brought this up on the podcast a few times, but I always explain that the Big Short as mm-hmm. a as a piece of you know film did a brilliant thing by entertaining people with the build-up made it feel exciting what was happening with these uh, right. uh, derivatives and these products that people were betting on to get super rich, and some people did get super rich. Mm-hmm. But they did this brilliant thing that they entertained you all the way through, and at the very end, they showed that family packing up their house because of the, they've lost their house. Yeah, And then we did uh, another podcast series about Steve Mnuchin, did a lot of research into this, and found out how, I think it was... the. People like BlackRock, ended up just sweeping up all these houses. And they've moved America more into a... shifted it more into a rental economy than a home ownership economy. Um, So I'm with you. Like... nothing was done.
0: Yeah. I I went and did reporting on a number of these homes that were illegally foreclosed upon, and it was predatory. It really Mm -hmm. was. One West. Yeah, one was among, you know, other banks, like Wells Fargo as well, was, was really big on this. And, and these, the, some of the occupiers would go, they were called Occupy Foreclosure, and they would sit in the homes that were being foreclosed on to try to stop the sheriffs from coming in and kicking the, the, the homeowner out. And these were homeowners who had been paying. They had been paying their, their mortgage. But the way that like they started charging like all sorts of ridiculous fees, and it was confusing. And all of a sudden they were being pushed into into foreclosure without really even understanding what had happened. And it was so sad. like these these were families with kids or, or like people who had had their home for for like 20 years or something. and now they, they were gonna be kicked out, they were close to retirement. like what were they, where were they gonna go? So there's a real crime that has been committed against you know, the middle class in the United States. And, and it's, it's really sad because nothing has been done and Kamala Harris had an opportunity, the vice president, had an opportunity to, do, to prosecute them.
2: She chose not to. And she chose not to. Yeah.
0: And now she's, she's vice president, right? So uh, what is there for people, really? But her
2: track record is not great on multiple... Different oh, policies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she likes to keep people in jail. Oh, laughs, she laughs about. about it. She
0: laughs about it, she, exactly. She
2: should and could have prosecuted one West. The um, she was recommended to, and she chose not to. Yeah. I mean, there's a word I could use, her, but in the presence of a lady, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll avoid it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I know the word. I don't. I really don't like her, and I. I. I mean, I don't like. I
2: don't Biden think either. many people like her. <laughs> But I didn't I feel sorry for her. He's like a weird old guy. <laughs> she but she's she's actually fundamentally a bad human.
0: Yeah, yeah, she is. Uh, the irony is her dad's a socialist or really? like a scholar. Well, no, Pete Buttigieg's dad is a, the preeminent Gramsci scholar, but her dad was like is is a Marxist scholar of some kind.
2: Yeah. Marxist, okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Dangerous territory. Yeah. so, so did this. Did this shape your views on capitalism, or did you already have?
0: I I mean, I was already a little cynical, but I didn't have like very well-founded uh, or round, well-rounded understanding of capitalism, I think, until the financial crisis and then Occupy. And, uh, and I think that really made me feel very uh, angry <laughs> about capitalism. Uh, obviously, um, not all Bitcoiners would agree with me there, but...
2: Well, we, we're going to get into dangerous <laughs> but, territory here. Yeah. <laughs> but like, are we talking about real capitalism or are we talking about...
0: Well, we're talking about... Richard capitalism. State state capitalism, neoliberalism, really, okay. right?
2: So, so there's a lot of nuance, obviously, to this because... Of course. Um, yeah, people have to go to work and earn money. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're not entirely against the idea of capitalism. It's the broken form of capitalism we're living under now.
0: Yeah. So I like to call the good form of capitalism, like markets. (laughs) Uh, It depends on who you ask. Like if you ask market anarchists, then, you know, they might call that like capitalism one. But I I think of it as just like, yeah, you can have markets, you can have competition and things like that. I think that's okay. Having like an, a society that is governed by markets is not necessarily a good thing. But of course, under neoliberalism, we have basically have become like um, sacrifices at the altar of of the economy and the market. So that to me is very dangerous. I'm very, I'm personally more interested in in finding a way of running an economy and society that is neither necessarily, you know, like... Marxist or, or state communism or, like, state capitalism, but something that is a blend that, that actually centers people in the economy. You're not, like, you have to work to live or you basically starve and die, right? You know, I think that we've gone so far off in one direction where people are just no longer seen as, as humans in this system. So, I, 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 I mean, I, I've always considered myself an anti-capitalist, I guess, since Occupy, but I, I try to um, I try to moderate that a little bit so that people understand where I'm coming from and why I might call myself an anti-capitalist. But I'm not anti anti markets.
2: Okay, well, we we should dig into that because I think that's <laughs> important because um, there's there's definitely going to be people who get triggered by oh, yeah. even discussing this. And me and Danny were having uh, we went out to get coffee this morning. And Danny um, is based in Australia. Mm -hmm. You don't mind me saying that, no? No, no. No. Um, And we were talking, I asked him about the mandates in Australia Mm -hmm. and how he feels Mm -hmm. Australia's done, and Danny was very much like, they've done a terrible job. Yeah. And I was like, I think we have to be able to discuss Every response to COVID, mm-hmm. you have to have the conversation to find out what worked and what did. not mm-hmm. Australia had a very low number of deaths. I think we looked at like five thousand, whereas the UK is like one hundred sixty thousand. It's hundreds of thousands here. <laughs> cool. Now there are certain people who listen to this show who will say any lockdown is wrong, and I'm kind of kind of with them now. as somebody who actually was supported the original two week lockdown, I said right. yeah, I understand this. Let's do it. But um, there are people who who are based in. Africa, when Ebola breaks out, they we we'll certainly need some form of lockdown because it's uh, yeah. crazy dangerous. So I think I think you have to have the conversation and not be scared of the conversation to say what worked and what didn't. You have to have the conversation to say it didn't work in Australia, right. but without you, you can't be angry at having the conversation. And and this is the point here: is people might be triggered at the idea that you want to talk that you're an anti-capitalist or you're a markets person, but not a you know you don't believe in capitalism as it is. You have to have the conversation to. To, to test yourself or your own theories of what you think works and doesn't work. And mm-hmm. this is right in the area that we're spending the most time discussing now, because I get called a status cuck all the time, <laughs> but I'm not a libertarian. Right. And I'm right in this area trying to understand why I'm not. Yeah. you know, And, and so we should dig into this. So, oh, yeah, so, sure. So what do you mean by you say you're a markets person, but, not, but you're an anti-capitalist?
0: So, uh, yeah, I'm... I think that markets have existed before capitalism. I think we have enough evidence of that going back through feudalism and before it in the anthropological record. And, and uh, markets exist, have often existed at the intersection of societies. And I, I talk about... I, I bring up David Graver all the time because he was an uh, incredible influence on me in my understanding and in in debt, the first 5000 years he looks at a lot of societies and he's like the, the the areas in in which the markets occurred in his descriptions were often at the edges so within the societies maybe they didn't even have money right but they they had all of these they had they had built in trust right like it, it, in a society where you know people where you know your community and you have Whatever guidelines or rules that your community follows your or your society follows, you may not need a market because your trust is how you make your decisions on you know whether you like give dowry like a bride dowry, like if you give you know someone's going to get married, right There's all sorts of customs ar- around like how resources are are divvied up and shared. But in the market. Uh, like haggling, I think was the word that he said. Its origin was was not like was not like the the nicest origin. It was something like uh, you would use with only with the stranger, like you would kind of like rip them off, kind of thing. So I think that markets exist where trust is low, which kind of goes back to like where Bitcoin is like don't trust, verify, kind of thing, like or it's like it's 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 trustless, like. There's, there's built-in mechanisms, so you don't have to necessarily trust the other person that you're exchanging with. And I think in those areas, markets will have to exist, will always come up spontaneously because there's no like human trust between strangers, necessarily. So in, in that sense, I think you know, markets naturally exist and there's plenty of evidence that markets have naturally existed. And uh, there's always been rules in markets too. Like in, in during feudal times, like they had rules against monopolies, right? So there have been rules, or what we might call regulations, but it depends on who's, you know, who's enforcing them, right? You know, we have regulations now enforced by the state. So then we have state capitalism, and we have we have now uh, finance capitalism. We started with industrial capitalism, where we were manufacturing everything in the United States, and there, there was jobs. And at that time, the economists, the classical economists, it was popular then to think that, oh, capitalism is gonna naturally progress towards socialism because it's cheaper for the employers to have the state provide these services to their workers. And they need workers to at least be healthy and fed and clothed and housed, right? So they can come and produce the the manufactured goods. But then the society in the United States and now, oops, and globally, have transitioned to finance capitalism. So our our economy is now very much finance based. Right? It's like plant. It's like all done with the banks, with Wall Street, and now there's like no incentive really to take care of people because you can make money off of rent, rent seeking. Uh, so like Michael Hudson, uh, he's an economist who's actually sort of more of like a progressive type economist, he wrote this amazing book called Sup- uh, Super Imperialism that talks about like how we got off of the gold standard and, and how these, the treasuries were used basically to fund our deficit spending and of course wars. So he, he like looks at Wall Street and he's like, oh yeah, like this is basically like the, where the central planning is now in the United States. And he says that this is a rentier economy. And I agree with him, like in finance capitalism, you're gonna make money off of interest, right? You're not really making fun uh, money off of tangible goods. So this has led to, I think, the situation that we're in where people don't really matter so much so long as they keep certain aspects of the economy going. And and that i i think is is very troubling because in order for this particular type of capitalism to work like with neoliberalism you really need the state involved and so there's there's a symbiotic parasitic relationship here where the state and let's say the the banking industry but also like other corporations like fossil fuel industry are are closely intertwined to make things favorable for finance. And for example, when you look at where how the money ends up going towards the fossil fuel industry, there's all sorts of really bad incentives that the government enforces with tax breaks and subsidies. That is that makes it a like a pipeline for funds and and loans to be from banks to go towards the fossil fuel industry, so so like issues that we have with like new coal plants coming online uh, are because uh, the because you literally can imagine like like pipes p- pushing the money in a particular direction, you know. Like uh, there's like paths that have been built in because of the government. So there's so, so many things that are happening in this pr- particular system. That is destructive, not just like people losing their homes and never getting a home back or you know, banks stealing their, their property from them. Or but but also like with, with fossil fuels, the fact that we have like five point one trillion um, subsidy, five point one trillion dollars worth of subsidies every year for the fossil fuel industry. So that to me really? does yeah, yeah, globally. Like it's like five, it's like five trillion every year. So we have a really screwed up system. And you, you can call it capitalism. You can call it crony capitalism. Call it whatever you want. The existing actual system that we live in is totally broken. And so uh, I have called it capitalism. So I'm anti-capitalist because I'm anti this system. But you can call it whatever you want. Maybe you're like anti-crony capitalism. It doesn't really matter. You're like anti neoliberalism It doesn't matter. Whatever this system is right You're anti the
2: broken bits of Uh, capitalism. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm like, this is broken. Yeah. Yeah. So.
2: Do you get much push, what kind of pushback do you get from people when you discuss this? Because uh, everything you're saying makes sense. Yeah. We all recognize it. Even Bitcoin has recognized it's broken. But when you say you're anti-capitalist, that's going to trigger people.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, see, I learned that I learned that in (laughs) Bitcoin because I come out of a I come out of the left, right? And for us it's like very natural, like, yeah, anti-capitalism, we all understand what we mean. But if I say that to somebody who is a libertarian, you know, oh my gosh, their head's gonna explode. Like, how dare you say that, you know? And then if I tell, you know, if I tell them like, oh yeah, I come out of the left, or like, you know, like I'm very like anarchist leaning, or I mean, I I was definitely more like a democratic socialist for a while because of Bernie Sanders. And if you say that, like people get really triggered and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, you're, you you're just, yeah, you just want to like, tell me what to do and take my property away and things like that. I'm like, no, I'm not really interested in doing any of those things. Or like, they're like, oh, you're going to come and mess up, you know, Bitcoin's uh, mon- monetary cap. You, you want to just like, Free money and stuff. Well, like, no, I don't want that either because obviously the money printing is partly why we're here. Right. So, so it's, it's like, uh, it's been really great actually to be more involved with people in Bitcoin now than because I, you know, I, I really got more into Bitcoin in 2018, but I, I, the first time I tried mining Bitcoin was somewhere like 2011, 2013 in that range. And I and I have a range because at the time I didn't know what I was doing. So, and I was like, oh, this is just another thing on the internet. So it wasn't something that really registered with me, but it was something that... Damn it. That I was like, yeah, no, after the fact, I was like, God damn it, man, I it. really blew that. <laughs> if only I understood money then. Uh, but it was something that I always just kind of followed until I really needed it in 2018. But anyway, I really didn't get into Bitcoin Twitter until uh, 2021. And even then, I was doing it anonymously because I was afraid of all the pushback I might get from people in the climate movement. But once I started interacting more and, like, going on spaces and stuff and, and seeing people's responses to certain things that I would say, I realized that we are so polarized, especially in the United States. And in this polarization, we have our own vocabularies. And we're using the same words, but they have different meanings. And we are completely turned against each other, even though fundamentally we agree that we all have this problem that we're facing.
2: I I think people agree a lot more than they think they agree.
0: Oh, yeah. I am so surprised. I was so surprised how many people were like, would DM me the first couple of times I would speak into space, and they're like, "Oh, that was great, what you said!" Like all, and I would just talk like about the stuff that I'm talking about now, like about finance, capitalism, about like you know these you know, these low interest environments create a, a lot of room for speculation, and, and the fact that innovation has been stymied because it's so easy to rent seek instead of investing in actual productive uh, areas of, of the economy. People are like, yeah, I totally agree with you. Or if I would say something like, you know, yeah, people like Alex DeVries complains about the e-waste thing, right? And he But he blows it out of proportion. And, and I would say, like, obviously, this is, you know, Bitcoin is not the only place where e-waste is, is a problem, right? And, and it's only a, a very, very, very tiny, tiny, like half a percent or something. Like everything else that Bitcoin does is only like a half a percent of, of the global impact. And... I would say like, but, you know, yeah, obviously this is not good. We cannot deny that, you know, throwing away these old miners is a good thing. We should be recycling them. But then again, like we're not recycling anything. Like we have very low recycling rates for e-waste in general. So it would be better if we had like, let's say like more modular miners, things that we could just like replace parts. But we have like a whole society that we have to shift. And people will be like, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, of course. But the... None of the people who are agreeing me probably call themselves a socialist or an anarchist or or anything like that or have read Marx or or whatever, right? Or a progressive even, but they're agreeing with me.
2: But this is the problem of division. Yeah. People have lost the ability to sit down and have a conversation and figure out well, what do we agree on? What do we disagree on with yes, the compromise? I did an interview yesterday. We'll talk talking about that it's much more of a problem here in the U.S. We don't. It's a, it's it's not as big an issue in the U.K. People are able to. And I, I, again, I say it's because we we don't have a two-party system, right. and we don't have such divisive uh, media. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here in the U.S., it's very divisive, and pe- I think sometimes people are trapped by their own political ideology that they well, I can't fucking agree with that person. Yeah. But what tends to happen is they can't agree with them on Twitter you go in a bar and you get two people around the table, have exactly. a conversation. You can you start to figure out what you agree on and what you disagree on. Absolutely. And I, like I said, I think we all agree on a lot more than we disagree on. I think the majority of people will agree that war is bad. Right. You know, uh, I think as long as people aren't deniers of climate change being caused by humans, they could agree that it's wrong and solutions are needed. Mm-hmm. So if we can get to those points, we can actually have these conversations.
0: Right. And but the thing is, how do we get there? Like, how do we get to the point where people can talk to each other? The only place where I've really seen that happen is in Bitcoin. Yeah. So to me, like, the social value of Bitcoin is, is massive because here we're forced to, to talk to each other because we've all come to this place because we know that the, at least the central banks we know fundamentally are screwing things up and, and are propping up an economy that doesn't work. Through quantitative easing, and quantitative easing is basically like the greatest wealth transfer that has ever happened, right? And
2: what is this? Uh, what is it? Travis Kling said it's universal basic income for rich people.
0: Exactly, right? We're propping up the stock market. This whole pandemic has been what what's called a K-shaped recovery. If your most of your investments are in in Wall Street or like on share markets, equities, whatever. You you're going to be okay, right? Because we just pumped a bunch of money. If you are a worker at a grocery store, you probably don't own any shares of any meaning. You got nothing. You got fourteen hundred dollars. Oh, good, right? That's going to really pay your bills. That's really going to keep your kids fed. Of course, it's not.
2: Well, this is so. This is what I discussed with Lynn Alden in our last show with wealth concentration, and the um, yeah, we got into the weeds that. But it's super like. Uh, Like, extreme wealth concentration leads to uh, civil unrest.
0: Absolutely.
2: Like, every single time, probably in every single country in the world, if you go back and you look at times of extreme wealth uh, concentration, uh, extreme wealth uh, uh, disparity, you have massive civil unrest because you erode the middle class Mm -hmm. um, and you destroy people's ability to live a decent life.
0: Yeah. And they remember what it was like to live mm-hmm. a decent life. And that's the thing in the United States, especially with the white working class. And it's something that the Democrats have completely failed to understand. The yeah. only person who did really understand it was Bernie Sanders and he was called a racist for it and, and a sexist. But the thing that people on the left and progressives and Democrats need to, to recognize is that there are a group of people here not who, are, who had something good, right? Okay, yeah. Black people were, were redlined. They didn't benefit as much from the New Deal, of course. This is no denying. But these people did. And then the manufacturing industry left them behind. They moved away to where it was cheaper for them to, to produce their goods. And they got nothing, right? They got absolutely nothing. And they have seen a decline over the last 30 years or so. And that, that's not even a full generation of people. Uh, that's that's not a full lifetime. And so they know what they were supposed to get. They were supposed to get the middle-class life that was promised them in the 50s and 60s and, and part of the 70s. And they it was taken away from them. So what, what do you expect them to do? How do you expect them to feel about this? And this is happening in rural America. And they've been completely ignored by the party system and the democrats who claim to be representing the working class have failed them and ignore them and have mostly focused on the urban areas and so yeah these people are going to be upset because all you're talking about is like you know uh black people gay people etc right but what about them and and like now they feel like i'm the bad person and it's almost controversial to say this too in some In some corners, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, you're You're in a safe place. Yeah, you're like you're racist, but it's like I'm, you know, it's not racism. It's just looking at the fact that yes, white people can can be disenfranchised too. It's an economic thing, and they are economically being disenfranchised as working class white people. And what are their options to join the military uh, or what? Like they they have no options. They stay in poverty too. Like the Appalachia is is incredibly impoverished. They have no insurance. They can't get their teeth fixed. You know, they, they, they lose all their teeth. They have to have, like, these free clinics that, to come and, and help them out. And they're completely abandoned. And when Bernie ran in 2016, the areas where he got a lot of votes were in rural areas. And that was used against him to say, that like, he could only get white votes. But the thing is, is that Bernie was talking about a big picture. He was really addressing, trying to address, like, the real economic issues. And he was talking about wealth inequality. He was talking about wealth con- concentration. And he was, he was going on tour across the United States, meeting with people in all of these places, not just in urban areas, but also in rural areas.
2: Why do you think the DNC didn't want him?
0: Well, because he's, you know, he's, he's talking about, like, taxing corporations and stuff. And the Democratic Party... Gets a lot of funding from Wall Street and corporations. And he was attacking Wall Street too. So he was really like, you know, we, going back to the discussion about Occupy failing, Occupy actually, in the immediate sense, failed. But in the long term sense, it didn't fail because I don't believe that Bernie Sanders could have run without Occupy. Okay. Yeah. And so he was really the Occupy president. He was addressing those issues that Occupy tried to address, but he was addressing it in an electoral way as a president, as running for president. So that is a threat to the Democratic Party because that's where a lot of their funding comes from. There's, I, this is something that I think people who come from a different uh, perspective in Bitcoin, like libertarians and so on, have to understand is, is that the Democratic Party is not progressive. It's not a left-wing party. It's a center, very centrist, corporate-backed party. And of course, they're not going to do anything for you they're not going to do anything for their for their base either. So, you know, they're just operating based off the people who give them money. And that's that's the reality. But they cloak it. They cloak it in identity politics like, "Oh, well, we're going to have the first woman, first African American woman Vice President. Or we're going to have the first African American Black President." You know, or we're going to we're going to nominate all these people of color to all of these offices. Look, look what we're doing. Isn't that great? Diversity. We're we're, we're being inclusive. But that's that's just that's just the veneer because that's not okay. Great, like it's I mean, not Yeah, it's just role models. Okay, you know, in one sense that's great, but but in the practical sense, like, well, the Navajo Nation still doesn't have access to water. They, you know, the that that coal mine that that was decommissioned. Like, what what's happening with with the remediation of the coal there? Like, these people have been completely ignored, and. Okay, like, what about the working class in general? Like, you know, does having Kamala Harris as vice president change change uh, their status? The, you know, the black community. Like, are they being uplifted by her being vice president? So far, I, have, I haven't seen that. So that's 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 the Democratic Party's playbook, is just to like give this sense, present themselves as like di- the, like the diverse party, like, and claim and every now and then throw a bone at at the working class. But they they really don't do anything. They haven't really done anything substantial, I think, in a long time.
2: Well, this is why it's very easy to have a lot of sympathy for libertarians, Mm -hmm. because it's a completely broken political system. Um, The financial system is also completely broken based on uh, successive uh, uh, governments from the left and the right. Yeah. Um, There's been multiple wars over the last few decades. Yep. Uh, it's very easy to point at the failings of government. Um, and I have so much sympathy. I think I think the libertarians absolutely have it right on paper. I just don't think it... I don't think we get to the society... I don't fully understand the society they picture. Um, and I don't think we can get there. So my view has always been, how do we make... How do we rebuild democracy? How to make it stronger? and i would i would i think if there was a, a strong libertarian party pulling at the strings of government to make government smaller or more responsible i think that would be a good thing yeah but i i struggle with their their whole idea
0: yeah the libertarians yeah of course they have fundamentally a good idea i think and of course their ideas come out of anarchism which which was originally anti-capitalist right? yep. so uh, but the thing that I think is problematic is that their solution is, let's just cut out all the laws, let's cut out all the regulations and just this bare minimum. And then everything is gonna be fine. The market's gonna take care of it. Well, of course-
2: We know historically that's not true.
0: It's not true. Climate change is the greatest market failure we've ever seen, right? So we do need rules and historically markets have had rules. Like I said, yeah. like even feudal times, we had rules against monopolies. Now wow. we don't have rules against monopolies. In law. We do, but they're not enforced.
2: I'm going to dive in. I'm also pro-regulation. Uh, I was talking about this with uh, the guys before. On the f- on the way over, I watched the documentary about Boeing yeah. on um, on my flight on Netflix. And one of the important things in that documentary is the role of the FAA. Mm, yeah. Uh, and every opportunity that you know, business and capitalists have to make money to cut corners, they will. But there's certain areas you can't cut corners. You cannot cut corners in the manufacture of planes. You have to have regulation, because otherwise, planes fall out of the sky and people die. And I don't think it's acceptable to say, well, people won't fly on those airlines because the reviews will say, you should not fly on this plane. I don't think that's acceptable. I think you have to preemptively prevent as many planes as possible falling out of the sky. Of course. And there's other similar things that you get from central authorities, which I think is super important, which is regulation around, say, nuclear or nuclear waste. yeah, There's a high regulation in the management of nuclear waste here in the US, whereas in, I think in Russia, they just pour concrete on it. Um, <laughs> the management of air traffic control, weather systems. Now, that's not to say that everything should be controlled by the government. I think we've gone too far. There are too many regulations. The government has too many centralized bodies. We, they, are, they can't be trusted. But the answer for me isn't to burn it all down. Right. It's to just fix what we have and make it better.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree. So, like within anarchism, like it's not necessarily that you have just like no rules or anything. Like, it's like that saying, "rules without rulers," right? So, what are regulations? Are nothing more than rules. And, but, and you but can,
2: who, who makes the rules?
0: Well, you ha- that depends on the society. In, in this particular society, we've 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 given up some of our liberties to the state and to representatives to to make those decisions for us. In a differently organized society, we would decide those rules by different means. But there's still rules nonetheless. And, and yeah, so I don't, yeah, in that aspect, I don't agree. Like, you can't just cut everything out and expect it to just naturally work. It just doesn't. That's just not, that's really not how society works. In, In that sense, and I think the libertarians will hate me by saying this, but. That's a little utopian.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not allowed to say that. Um, we're gonna have Michael Malice back on the show soon, and oh, I'm gonna be discussing yeah. this stuff with him, because one of the rabbit holes I've been going down is the positive versus negative liberty. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: um, because a lot of libertarians believe in negative liberty. Mm-hmm. Freedom from mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, imposing rules over me. Um, and I was watching a YouTube video about this, and uh, there was a... I can't remember the guy, there's a book. About a guy from the era of slavery when the um, uh, when the slaves were freed he said yes I'm free but I don't have anything I don't have any money I don't have any land I can't get anything so the idea of positive liberty being that freedom too mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of criticism of uh, negative liberty in that whilst it's absolute liberty it puts you in a position whereby you actually empower the strongest mm-hmm. and the, the, the wealthiest in society. But what, uh, posi- positive, li- I what positive liberty does, it kind of creates that opportunity and that more level playing field that everyone has a chance. And I'm like, I'm lost in it. Yeah. I'm very early studying it, but I'm trying to get my head around it. And my belief is that you, you have to have government to have positive liberty because you have to have a way of structuring society to give people the opportunity to live a free life.
0: Right. Well, I think, you don't necessarily have to have like a government as structured and hierarchical as one we have now to, no. to provide that. A more
2: smaller, you could do it.
0: And there's again in the anthropological record, there's societies like it, even in, in the Americas it, before uh, before the French Revolution, where where they they had these much more low hierarchy societies where the free your freedom is defined by your relationship to other people. And I think that that's the difference between what maybe the libertarians think of or what Michael Miles thinks of a freedom is like, you know, I'm free free to do whatever I want. But actually in societies, historically, your freedom was really defined by your relationship to somebody else. So what I do affects them and I'm responsible to them. So I actually have to define my freedom in the sense of, is what I'm doing going to hurt uh, the people around me or hurt my my society? And I think that that's actually the the kind of freedom that happens in the real world. And it's not so much this like I just do whatever I want freedom. And well,
2: there's consequences.
0: Yeah, and and for example and i believe this example comes out of the the new david wengrow david graber book called dawn of everything and i haven't read it yet but i've like watched uh, wengrow's interviews and read a number of views and in the in the book they uh, talk about how they dealt with murder in this one particular society in the americas in the united well now the united states and it, so if if you murdered a, a family member of mine you wouldn't go to jail but your entire family would have to compensate my family for for that murder. So the the damage that you did has to be shared by your family.
2: What if you don't like your family? You're screwed.
0: <laughs> they, I, well, I don't
2: know. No, your family's screwed.
0: Well, they're screwed. Yeah, like you they don't like you. They're they're still responsible to pay for what you did.
2: But you can just go around killing people, and your family has to pay for it.
0: Well, it, apparently, it worked in this society to minimize deaths. That was their that was the way that. Or they minimize murders because the consequence was shared. So, how, like, how, now, now people in your family have to keep you in check. And you're like, don't do that.
2: How, how big is <laughs> Maybe that so- they murder you. Well, maybe. How big is that society?
0: <laughs> I, I don't know how big they were, but they were, they must have been pretty big because they were uh, interacting a lot with, with people who were coming over from Europe. And they had a pretty big influence on the Enlightenment in, in Europe leading up to the French Revolution, because they actually thought that, in a way, they thought that the, the Europeans were a little barbaric <laughs> because they really didn't have this like concept of freedom in or liberty in Europe at the time.
2: I'm not sure I can buy that as a solution. Yeah.
0: No, no, I'm not saying that's a solution. I'm just saying that in the anthropological record, like that was one way that they did it. Maybe it doesn't work for you, but it worked for this particular society. So I'm just saying, like, there are alternative ways in which societies can operate. And it really depends on, you know, depends on the people who are in those societies to to make those decisions. So I guess in just it's just an example that there are different ways that you can approach this. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a highly structured or bureaucratic uh, government. It can be governance by different means. And I think it's important for us to think about all the different possibilities in which we could run our our lives. Because for so long, we've, we've lived within this structure. And this particular structure, I think, is failing. And so we have to figure out, if it's failing, what comes next? And if we have a chance to shape what comes next, we should really start looking at how other societies have operated in the past and try to get ideas of how to do to fix the problems that we have in, in this next step.
2: Doesn't, doesn't Bitcoin fix this?
0: Bitcoin fixes some things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the great thing about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is a decentralized network, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think of it as just like a description of a network topology. I think of it as actually a philosophy that sort of rubs off on everybody who comes in interacting with the network or participating in the network. And it changes the way you think about things.
2: A lot of things.
0: Yeah. I mean, myself as well. I, it's, it's changed a lot of how I think about energy, for example. And I think that this is sort of like... It, it's, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse for figuring out how to run society in a less centralized way. And I think that that can actually help us it, and and one way that I think it uh, one area that I think it aligns very well with is something called communalism, which uh, Murray Bookchin developed in the uh, later in life. I guess like in the eighties or nineties, he, he came up with this idea, which are like radical municipalities, or basically it's like bringing governance more of the power of governments down to the municipal level.
2: Yeah, localism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Localism. So. So that was something that he defined pretty early on. And he had a really good understanding also of the climate crisis before people started calling it a climate crisis or really understood climate change on a, on like a national discourse level. Like he was talking about this in the 80s. And and so his, his solution was... So he was originally, he he came out of, of like the Marxist left. He became disillusioned with them. And then he became an anarchist. And then he started developing these ideas. And he was like, this is like one way that we can do some kind of, some form of anarchism within the existing structure. And he called it communalism. He had a really hard time getting other anarchists on board with this, actually, which I was kind of surprised with. I think maybe because it's sort of, it's sort of somewhere in between. It's sort of, it's like no, it's not no hierarchies. There, There's like, I call. I think it's more like low hierarchies, but it can exist within the existing, uh, like United States, and it's basically like take over your local government, in, and start creating more of these local neighborhood assemblies. Get 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 people locally involved in their community and make decision decisions on that level, and and that i think actually works very well with bitcoin because it's it is already has the idea of of decentralization and so you can start doing this like if you're going to transition into a new society well you're going to have to build that society alongside the existing society so if we could incorporate this type of localism and this type of communalism where we have more democratic input from the people who are actually living in those areas then we may actually be able to fix some of those problems on the on the social side, and then combine that with Bitcoin, which is uh, you know a, a decentralized money. It's a stateless money, and and mining. Right, you can maybe have some self sufficiency within those communities if you you if you're if you're mining and you, you're using those mining rewards to put back, to give back to the community, like buying whatever is needed or funding parks or whatever. Right. So that to me is, is like a potential vision for, uh, what, what a society could be like that incorporates Bitcoin at a local level. And I'm still, I'm still thinking this through. So this is this like very early stages of what I am. And I'm trying to understand more of, of Murray Bookchin's work, but like, to me, I think Bitcoin fixes this in the sense that it can incentivize more localism.
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custody in your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot Next up, it is Gemini. I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, and even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying, I'm a hodler, but I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's sportsbet.io the very best place for online gaming, because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports, they even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also, today we have Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full-suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars, it's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners, ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is LVL.co forward slash WBD for info and early access.
2: Well, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, we saw that essentially in El Zonte. Of course, yeah. Which you wrote about in your article, which uh, we will share in the show notes because it's... it's a thought provoking article. Um, and we, we're going to cover the climate stuff. We are getting there, which is the main reason I want to speak to you. But just yeah. <laughs> one, one question before we get to that is that um, in the kind of Bitcoin world, there are, as we said, lots of libertarians who believe in uh, some in no government, some in smaller government. Right. There are people on the right who generally kind of, even though the right now is conservative the Republican side, her, oh, oh, big government, but these people do believe in smaller government and kind of leave me the fuck alone kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think Bitcoin has struggled to bring progressives in. Um, and this is one of the reasons I want you on the show. It's yeah. one of the reasons I had Ben Ark on the, ro- the show recently. I've had Anita Posh on the show. I will happily have anyone there but right? I don't care. Yeah. Have anyone on because I think it should bring us all together why do you think we've struggled to bring progressives into the Bitcoin world?
0: Yeah, I think part of it is that progressives are looking towards using government to create protections for the working class. And they see that as the main way to do that in this society. And they're wary of anything that, that even sounds libertarian because that's the opposition. And of course, the the other problem for them is that the the FUD the is telling them two things. Bitcoin is bad for climate change. It's going to melt the planet. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin is just a speculative asset. It's just for speculation. It has no real world value. Well, speculation, okay, that's triggering because we're opposed to Wall Street as progressive, right? You don't like Wall Street, you think it should be better regulated. You know, uh, they're they're part of the problem. And so all that, all they're hearing is Bitcoin is just a tool for Wall Street. It's just another game, another market in which they can play and have fun and make money and they're not getting anything from it. So how do you get them through all these layers of FUD? It's a lot of layers. It's very, very hard. I I got a text message from a friend yesterday. It was or not, I mean the last couple of days. It completely blew my mind because I sent him last year. I sent him an an article that I wrote about climate change and Bitcoin. I called it the financial Hail Mary for the climate, Bitcoin adoption. And he he read an early draft and he was like, Why do you think? Bitcoin's going to save the world. He was like super skeptical. And he actually, at some point, like we couldn't even talk about it anymore because he would get really upset. And he, so he sent me a message. He was like, Margo, I'm so sorry. I just want to apologize for what I said. I, I didn't understand. Or he was like, now that I'm seeing like how all these Russians are using it to be able to get, you know, overt get around like some of these like war sanctions that are happening, like banks being, you know, freezing assets, freezing their money and stuff like that, or like dissidents or whatever he's saying now in the news or on Twitter. He's like, now I understand, you know, basically like now I understand. And you were ahead of, you were the head of the game or something like that. I was like, wow, right. i never expected this from somebody who's, who is completely cynical, who was completely cynical, really thought that. Bitcoin was really bad for the environment, that it was nothing more than a tool for capitalists to play with. And now he's telling me like, I'm so sorry, I got it wrong. And so I think that the what that means is that we just have to keep having these different voices speaking about Bitcoin from a, within the language that they understand. And, and the thing that he said was, I think that what you wrote made it possible for me to have an open mind to do to be able to get to this point
2: Is that paper available?
0: Yeah it's it's on medium it's it's under my my pseudonym
2: Okay so you can <laughs> tell you tell me afterwards yeah you tell me secretly and I'll go read it and I can't share it in the show notes but uh, yeah you can
0: share it I okay. mean it, we're,
2: we're gonna expose your NIM yeah
0: because I yeah because uh, well originally I, I, I was using this NIM because I was worried that climate activists would hate me. Writing it, and I was involved in the climate movement. I used to lead protests and stuff. And I thought everybody in climate hates <laughs> hates Bitcoin because they think it's melting the planet. Well,
2: we need we need to get these positive messages across to people. Um, people are resourceful with money. Um, if you're in Lebanon and your currency's collapsed, or you're in Turkey and your currency is collapsing, yeah. or Argentina. You find ways of protecting your wealth. People will always find ways of protecting their wealth. People in Russia right now will be finding ways of protecting their wealth or trading. They'll be trying to find it. And I mean, Venezuela, there's access to five currencies people use there. They find ways. People are resourceful. Uh, Criminals will always use money. (laughs) They will always find a way. You know, to to say, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, uh, keeps, she's like chief FUD promoter at the moment, whether it's, sanctions or whether it's uh, climate change or whether it's criminals. She's a cheap FUD promoter, but oh, yeah. all these people can do, all the things they're doing with Bitcoin, they can do with the dollar. But the great thing about Bitcoin is we cut out a lot of the incentives that come from government, mm-hmm. which fuck with the financial system. Exactly. So we we have to work much harder to get these messages across. Uh, I, you know, I I would say on my show, it's very easy for me every week to have a libertarian on or someone from the right and talk about their ideas. but They're out there. There's 20 other podcasts covering this. I think it's right now, it's more important for me to have people like you on and start speaking to progressives and start saying to them, like, Bitcoin isn't the big scary monster. There's actually a lot of good things Bitcoin can do that you could care about that, you know, hopefully it reduces wealth concentration, it supports activists, You you know, there's all these things. So I think it's a much more important conversation to be having.
0: Yeah, and it's really important because a lot of those people who could benefit from Bitcoin are going towards Ethereum and going towards DAOs and going towards NFTs because because the DAO governance feels like a community,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and in Bitcoin we're like a little individualist in a way, you mm-hmm. know. We and 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 that's that's not appealing to them. So like when I wrote that progressive article for Bitcoin Magazine, I I wanted to highlight like. You know, yeah, there's individualism, but like individuals are in a community and there's a lot that Bitcoin can do for a community.
2: Well, look at look how people get together. I mean, great example, look what's happened in Ukraine at the moment. They're trying to raise money for the mm-hmm. army. 50 odd million was donated. Look what's happening with the truckers, people donated. Yeah. People come together outside of government and work together in Bitcoin to help the causes they believe in. They probably do a far better job and probably more money that gets donated. They're they're probably just a better uh, group of people deploying capital. So, uh, it's just about replaying these messages and reinforcing them and and cutting out idiots like Senator Warren, who I think is... I think she's the enemy of progressives.
0: She... Well, she's an opportunist. Yeah, She uh, completely destroyed Bernie's chances in 2020 because she didn't endorse him. She ran. And then she waited so long to drop out and then she called him a sexist on stage and and call, created all of this drama and put him in, in a terrible position that was based off of nothing. Mm-hmm. And she really damaged her reputation with progressives and and Bernie supporters because they liked her up to the point. I, I, I liked her up to the point because she, for a while, she was very strong on the banking industry, right? She
2: went off to
0: And and now she's ever since then like. It's like, who are you really, right? You're just some opportunist. You're just here to like make yourself, you just want to be in the limelight. What are you really trying to do? And now, I mean, she recently did call out the, like the big banks because they were uh, putting all of these horrible fees on people during the pandemic when work was difficult and all these people were out on jobs. But she completely doesn't understand Bitcoin. And I think maybe it's because she really thinks that the only solution is a federal reserve, a central money system, things like that. Like, she is really for that. And I'm sure she would be for CBDCs. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put that past her. But, yeah, she's done a lot of damage and she's damaged her. I mean, she's done a lot of damage to the progressives. I mean, she's doing a lot of damage on Bitcoin and yeah, she's to me she's lost all credibility.
2: Just retire, Senator Warren. Please yeah, retire. it's like
0: you're not helping the situation. You've completely you your reputation is just in the dirt at this point for oh. a lot of a lot of progressives. A lot of people supported Bernie. So I really I, I'm super disappointed in her and and yeah, go go, go away. away. Go away.
2: <laughs> right. So we, we need to talk about climate stuff. Yeah. Which uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about. Um, It's going to be another triggering and tricky subject. Yeah. But um, I think it is worth talking about. It's a a subject important to me, but I'm fully aware I'm a hypocrite. I'm personally pretty shit at at my own carbon footprint and something I need to think about. But uh, it is an important issue that needs to be talked about. Um, It's not something high on the agenda of a lot of people in Bitcoin, but there are a range of people. So mm-hmm. let's be mm-hmm. fair about this. We have, um... We have people who believe climate change is happening. It's caused by humans. It's an issue. And if we don't deal with it, there's going to be severe consequences for the people of the planet. We have people who believe climate change is happening mm-hmm. and it's cyclical and it's got nothing to do <laughs> with humans. We've got people who believe in climate change is an issue, but are very nervous about centralized government uh, creating policy and also uh, abusing it and Mm -hmm. exploiting it. But then we have people who are outright denying there is any issue and that uh, we should just keep burning fossil fuels and not care, yada yada. Uh, I suspect you're nearer the, like me, nearer the start of that list as somebody who's concerned about it.
0: Yeah, like Uh, off the the edge.
2: (laughs) So, so f- <laughs> for for context, just explain why you're credible in this area. Explain yeah. what it is you do so people know.
0: Right, yeah. So I'm a physicist. I actually started my PhD at Georgia Tech in the physics department. I was working on robotics, the intersection of robotics and physics and biology, studying sand uh, lizards and snakes and their locomotion. I would build robotic models. So I have a... a, a sort of like a mechatronics background. And I was doing that for a while. And then, so when I started, it was 2016, and uh, Trump was elected. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, put out this video. He was like, climate scientists, come to the United States. We believe in climate change. Come work with us. And this was my first year. And I, I... I thought, yeah, that's great. I wish that I could do that. I even looked at the the application form and stuff. And I thought, but what good am I? I'm just a first year PhD student in physics. I have nothing to offer. So I just kept focusing on my research. And then I started feeling like the government is is not doing enough and I'm not doing enough. And my work, as fun as it is, and I had... My goal was to go back to JPL to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory because I, I loved it there and I wanted to work on space stuff and astronomy and astrobiology. And I was in an in astrobiology instrumentation group and we had we got a, an instrument on the Perseverance Mars rover. So I got That's to contri- pretty cool. Yeah, I got to contribute to that. And I I loved that experience and I wanted to go back there. So I was still work I was even working on a NASA project. In, for a little while in that research group as a side from this, like, sand locomotion stuff. And it was uh, um, a moon rover. It was a moon prospect, the lunar prospect rover, something like that. And it, and it was going to, like, drill for water. and Anyway, that got canceled. But I was doing that, and but I was starting to, to feel like I'm not doing enough. This is not meaningful. This is not going to have an impact on people. And climate change is getting worse. And governments aren't doing enough. So I switched departments and I ended up in a group in the civil and environmental engineering department. It's a water resources in the water resources program and I I joined that group because my advisor was the author, the lead author on the 2014 climate assessment water chapter so the United States every number of years puts out these climate assessments and so he was on the 2014 one and he had a letter from Obama that was like thanking him for his contribution and like everything in the in in the office was like stuff related to climate change and water and I thought this is my chance to do to do something and I actually got there because I was looking for a summer job on campus because I was trying to figure out what to do after I was going to leave and I needed funding. So I actually got hired to be a, a web developer for them. So that's how I got got there in the first place. And and when I walked in and I saw all this stuff, I I told my mom, I was like, mom, this reminds me of JPL. Like these people remind me of JPL. I, I think I have to figure out how to stay here, which is what I said at JPL. I was like, I have to figure out how to stay here and never leave. And And I felt the same thing. And so I got there and I, And my advisor liked me enough to allow me to be in his program. And I I had to start over. Like I had to take a a whole new qualifying exam, do like a whole new first year classes in water resources. And I had to learn a little bit about the climate and the the water cycle, hydrology, Uh, learned about coastal structures, like things that happen like what are the, you know, how do like structures survive a tsunami, for example, or like, what are the evacuation structures that can be built and what are the regulations around that? Like, how do you make these empirical calculations? And, and like engineering is all empirical in this. And that means that it's not based necessarily in, in a theoretical equation. Like you have to like go out, collect data and figure out like, what are some sort of like governing empirical uh, equations that we could use to estimate these things, right? So there's a lot of that with like how, like deciding like how high up you should build one of these evacuation buildings so that if the water runs up from a tsunami, that it doesn't topple or like people are able to stay above it. So I took classes like that. And then my research, I, I kept telling my advisor, I want to do climate change stuff. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I don't want to work on this other stuff that other people are working on, which is absolutely interesting, of course. But it was not like directly climate change. So I've been working on a model. It's a statistical model. So it's different from like the the climate models that you hear about, which are which use a lot of uh, physical equations and stuff. And there's models for clouds and they, they take a long time to run. These are statistical models that can be run in a shorter period of time. And then you can actually incorporate them into management software so that people could actually use them locally. So there's like Water Manager. So... So we have these decision um, management softwares that um, we've done or previous people in in the group have done that help them decide like how much water you should release from the dam, you know, depending on the historical weather. And now like they now we have to design them in, in a way that is. Uh, adaptive because you can't rely on the historical record anymore because of climate change. So, so my model is statistical, and I I take sea surface temperatures, and I look for correlations. So statistical statistical correlations, which means like, you know, is there a relationship between these points, like of of temperature on the surface of the ocean? Are they related in some way to some other? Uh, Climate variable like rainfall, and if there's a high relationship between them or high correlation, then I build a, a linear model. So I'm pretty sure I'm, le- I'm losing like most of your audience here, but I just it's just a it's a model, and and then with that model, I can try to use that to make uh, predictions about something that's happened in the future with with new uh, sea surface temperature data or new rainfall data or something like that. So. So that's what I work on. And, and the goal there with this particular project is to try to forecast frequencies of hurricanes over the next coming decades. So we want to know, um, you know, are we going to see more hurricanes? Right? There's Our understanding is probably, we're seeing a lot more extreme hurricane uh, happening hurricanes happening around the United States, like the Gulf, Gulf of Mexico and places like that. So that's where my research is right now. So it is climate change related. We, we focus on the water side. I'm not like a climate scientist in the sense that like I study you know, the atmosphere or I study glaciers. I'm a physicist who works on climate change in the civil and environmental engineering department. And our goal is a little more practical.
2: But you're in a community of people who consider a range of uh, issues to do with climate change. Yeah, You're exposed yeah. to a lot of different people.
0: Yeah, I mean, my, like I said, my advisor wrote the chapter, the water chapter, the 2014 climate assessment. So that's all about, like, what is going to happen in the United States with rainfall, with droughts, floods, things like that.
2: But there's a lot of people who just outright deny there's an issue mm-hmm. or have questioned previous models. Mm-hmm. I mentioned you, Michael Mann, like people yeah. bring up his calling right. article, which he now debunked and said it was wrong. Yeah. But other people say, Well, we've had so many models in the past and they haven't been what people have said. And you know, when we had Eric Weinstein on, he was saying, Well, can people actually model this stuff? Can you model all this stuff?
0: Yeah, that's the Jordan Peterson line too. Like
2: Yeah, I'm a f- bit bit disappointed with Jordan Peterson recently. Personally, yeah. I, I feel like mm, I like I haven't. You mentioned I interviewed Catherine Hayhoe, someone I hugely respect um, within this field, and she refuses to even debate climate deniers. She says, why, yeah. "Why? Why would I do that?" Like most people, with common sense, wouldn't debate a flat earther because it's yeah. nonsense. Yeah. For me, in my world, this is absolute nonsense. Climate change is happening. It is caused by humans, and there are very severe consequences that come in. So, for those people who like who. <laughs> If you use the word denial, like, will be used against you. But people who are skeptical, what what do you say to them?
0: Oh, it's hard. It, it depends on how skeptical they are or how, like, much they deny it.
2: Super, super skeptical.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to... I haven't really interacted one-on-one in person with people who deny climate change. Most of it I've come across on Twitter. Let's,
2: let's try now. I'll be that person. <laughs> I'm like, Margot. This is bullshit. This is bullshit.
0: Well, I guess I would add like, well, why is it bullshit? Like, what what <laughs> aspect of it do, do you well, not? The, the, I mean,
2: <laughs> climate's always been changing. And oh yeah, you know, if we go back and look into the s- soil samples from 400,000 years ago, we had similar blah blah blah, blah same shit. This it always we say.
0: Yeah right. So people say that. Um, of course, yeah, we've had high concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the past. But that was before, first of all, that was before humans were even on this planet. Second of all, like, if you look at over a long period of time, you can actually see how the emissions have ramped up considerably, or how temperature has ramped up considerably. Like, it's exponential growth. And in that is never, you have never seen that in the in the climactic record or, or the ice core records. Of, of the paleo climate, right? You've never seen that. It's, it has never, ever like on shot up, like what they call like a hockey puck. I mean, like a hockey stick. Yeah, And that, that is a sign that something has changed. So you could show people that you can like show them like, look, well, look here, like, look over like these millions of years, like this has never happened. Now suddenly here, where humans exist, like since the late 1800s, we're seeing this exponential growth. So what is the cause of that? And they, depending on like how much uh, like they spend uh, looking through these uh, climate denial websites, they might come up with something else and then you have to like tell them, well, you know, that's like a very deep, like take, that's like taken out of context or that just doesn't, that that, I don't even know where you got that. That doesn't even make sense. You know, there's a lot of that. So it's really, there's a lot of layers that you have to peel back.
2: And there's dishonest actors who disseminate Mm -hmm. disinformation with regards to climate change, Mm -hmm. who are paid by groups, lobbying groups. Uh, I interviewed Nathaniel Rich, uh, who wrote a book on climate change, who back in, I think it's back in the 70s, the oil companies had consensus. The scientists Mm -hmm. at the oil companies knew there was a problem. Yeah. Uh, I think it... I can't remember the name of the book. Daniel, look it up, but... Um, Losing Earth. Losing, Earth, Losing the, Earth, the decade we had. Uh, the decade we almost... Uh... So the decade we almost stopped climate change or yeah.
0: something. Yeah, yeah, I think
2: I've heard of this book. Yes, he's, I mean, he's, um, he's a great writer. Um, he, uh, he wrote the article that led to the film Dark Waters about DuPont oh, okay, uh, yeah. poisoning the waters yeah. around the factories and yeah. killing the cows. Like, the film came from his article. Uh, he wrote this book. He also uh, did, did an investigation into Quadriga. Uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic journalist, uh, a fantastic writer. But, but in that book, he was saying there was consensus with the scientists working at oil companies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But due to yeah, policy change or fear within government, this was all kind of pushed back. And then we, we lost the opportunity at that time to to, to attack this. And and what I've become aware of is that there are people out there uh, spreading falsities about the environment, Mm -hmm. um, which is problematic.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a a whole other issue: misinformation online, or just outright outright lies, making things up and presenting them as facts. That that happens in a number of spaces. I mean, even like with the reporting on with, with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, like you, it's like really hard sometimes to know. Like the, okay, did that actually happen? Was that actually in Ukraine? Because there were a lot of clips that were from Palestine, actually, early on. So, yeah, I don't, I was, I don't understand the motivation for spreading lies like that. Confusing people seems to be the main goal. And with climate change, uh, that has happened. Uh, that has been has been happening over the last several decades.
2: Well, it's incentive models. As well. I mean, it depends on the. I think it depends on what we're talking about. If you're talking about a war zone, yeah, we're talking about propaganda as a weapon of war. Yeah, You have guns, you have tanks, but you also have propaganda. Um, and the Ukrainian government are also clearly disseminating propaganda, but uh, you can't help but say, well, they're being attacked by the largest army in the <laughs> yeah. world or one of the largest armies in the world. If they have to use that weapon, then you can kind of understand and defend it. But when it comes down to things like climate change, there's clearly incentive models financial incentive models yeah
0: yeah in, in that case you can you you can see a little bit more why it, it's it's not as confusing like the, the the you know the goals I think but but the goal obviously with climate change is to stop action yes and and Exxon knew like at the the late 70s early 80s they knew they what knew. they were doing they mm-hmm. knew that they were and even even then scientists knew like even at the turn of the 20th century like the late 1800s there w- there was a news paper clip uh, that said like so putting these co2 emissions are probably going to have a, a major effect in 100 years so we've known all this time since really the since the start of the industrial revolution that what we were doing was going to change the chemistry of the atmosphere and was going to have certain effects. And so these models obviously were developed, and these models are not wrong. In fact, like, the models actually have been very good. And if anything, they have been too conservative in their forecasting of what will happen if we remain on this particular trajectory of continuing to burn fossil fuels. And so people like Jordan Peterson who say like, ah, well, you know, what's the climate? The climate is everything. And you can't model that because there's too many variables. So how can you rely on the, on this? Like that's complete falsehood, right? That's a complete denial of, of statistics. Statistics play a really important role in understanding the results of these models. And if you actually look at the IPCC reports, or if you look at the climate assessment report that like my advisor wrote, you'll see that they always measure their claims, their findings by high confidence, medium confidence, low confidence, because these are all probabilities, all their forecasting. So yeah, as you go over time, you do have uncertainties. Of course, that's just natural because the farther out you get, you really don't know what's going to happen. So you can only project and say like, well, if we stay on this trajectory and nothing else changes, this is what's going to happen. And so this is a way for us to Make decisions about the future now, and and for some people, it seems like those uncertainties mean that we shouldn't do anything. But for me, I think these uncertainties actually mean that we should, because we don't know for sure if it will happen sooner than what we are projecting.
2: But where? That's a big question. But like, where are we right now? Like.
0: So uh, in terms of the models, I think right now we're at a crossroad of where we could go
2: Danny, can you look up that recent report that just came out because there was a, I can't remember who produced the report, but they said there there was a new report that came out that claimed that we're actually now at the point where certain things are, are irreversible mm-hmm. we've've we've reached the point that certain problems caused by climate change are irreversible yeah, but I don't know the detail Danny can look it up the yeah. IPCC one.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So that the recent IPCC report came out is on adaptation. They basically have admitted, I think for the first time, that there are some things that we can't change. We have already, ha- we have already damaged things or we the climate has already changed to the point that we're not going to be able to go back to the way the climate used to be. And that's really significant. It's a, a major admission that in some ways we have to adapt to what what is happening. We're going to have to adapt to the fact that we're going to have more fires, more extreme weather. We're going to have more droughts. Uh, what was it? In uh, Madagascar recently, they had a horrific famine, climate change related. The boreal forests are catching on fire. They they stopped becoming carbon sinks. Like Brazil, the forest in Brazil is now a, a source of carbon instead of a carbon sink because of all the fires there. So yeah, there are things that we've already lost and people don't really understand that. And, I, and the more you look at this whole picture with the renewable energy transition, the more you realize or the more I've realized that we're, even if we want to move faster, I think there's a limit to how fast we can move in the transition, which means that there's going to be more bad things that are gonna happen to people, more damages, more climate refugees, more people who are gonna uh, see their, their agriculture collapse because we're not going to be able to stop the emissions fast enough. And I don't think that most people really understand that, that this is the case, that we've already damaged our planet to an extent where we have to somehow manage that damage. And that means that a lot of people are gonna get hurt. And it's really sad because we had all this opportunity to fix it. If we had started this 20 years ago, the speed at which we were going wouldn't be so big of a deal.
2: How how would it be fixable? Because obviously there's been a big push for renewables, mm-hmm. uh, wind and solar, mm-hmm. uh, hydropower. Uh, but we know wind and solar are not reliable. Um, there's been a pushback against nuclear, uh, where we know nuclear is you know, arguably one of the Again, it's arguable because it depends who you are. But some people say it's the best form of energy generation we have. Others say um, it's not worth it because of the risks that come in nuclear. I'm, I'm obviously out of my depth here. From, from your point of view, how, how do you think it should be solved?
0: Right. So there's there's two things that two separate issues that have to be tackled. Obviously, we have to stop burning fossil fuels, and we need to transition our grid to a renewable energy based grid. And yeah, it's intermittent, so there are issues that have to be addressed. But I think they can be addressed. And they are being addressed, but it's it's a little slow. And, and Bitcoin plays a role in that, obviously, like we're seeing here in Texas with ERCOT. Uh, we're seeing Bitcoin mining play a role in balancing the grid.
2: Isn't that one of the most unbelievable outcomes for Bitcoin that not even Satoshi could have predicted? It's just... Fucking beautiful. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I no. keep getting emails from people saying, can you stop swearing on your show, please? Really? Like, than, yeah, a oh, lot. My, oh, wow. I tell them to fuck off.
0: Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's your show, man. Do whatever you want. But yeah, no. Oh, my gosh. When I realized that Bitcoin could be useful in climate change, I, it was not really because of renewable energy. It was because I thought that Bitcoin could be a, a transition that would help us get out of one system into a new system. And I was mostly in that uh, right in, in that essay that I wrote about that was just like firstly just saying like look the incentives for bitcoin are such that it's going to look for cheap cheap electricity and renewable energy is the cheapest. So obviously it's going to move towards that direction et cetera, et cetera as as we know. But then later on I started learning about the renewable stuff and as I you know, I joined the Bitcoin Policy Institute that was becoming more and more our focus. It completely blew my mind and I one thing that I would love to do is is a full-scale study like collect data from the miners who are working in ERCOT, and really look at how they how they really are playing a role because right now all we
2: have are are news articles. Well what's stopping you doing this? Oh, well <laughs>
0: Oh, funding! <laughs> wow. Well, so some
2: people say that this is one of the you know the problems with the uh, people who yeah uh, you know, environmentalists or scientists who believe in climate change. They really just after funding dollars.
0: Oh well, what you would, want to know how much I get paid?
2: <laughs> what would it cost to fund this?
0: Mm. Oh well, depends on the scale, but at least the equivalent of my stipend. <laughs>
2: I don't know what that is.
0: Well, I get paid nothing. I get paid after the university takes um, their cut. I get like $25,000 a year.
2: So what would it cost you to go and do the study?
0: Uh, I would take at least 30000 on top of that <laughs> <All> right, well, <laughs> because it would be full. It would be a full-time uh, project.
2: So it's, a, it's not even a whole Bitcoin to go and do it?
0: No, it's not even a whole Bitcoin. <laughs> if you want to just throw like, part of your Bitcoin <laughs> at this, you, can, you could do that. But yeah, I would love to do a study that, on that because we don't have peer reviewed papers on what's going on in ERCOT, and it would be fantastic to fight the FUD if we could have a few more peer reviewed papers out there, really examining on the ground what Bitcoin mining is doing in the renewable energy transition, how it's ba- balancing the grid, how the miners are are turning off based off price signals, how they're they're interacting and uh, with uh, with the grid operators. Like, how it's a it wonderful. Serious, uh, how long would it take? <sighs> It would probably well, I mean, it depends on how long it takes to collect the data and then uh, depends on exactly what direction we want to go and what the study could take like six months. Okay. Could take a year. I don't know.
2: Well, we'll just get you the money to do that. If it needs to be done, surely we can get one Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean <I'm- laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean it would I would I really I've been talking about this with Troy, like I really want to do a case study of ERCOT because we really need to have A legitimate paper come out of this because everything that we have in terms of Bitcoin is based off of models, and some of them are egregiously wrong, and some of them are really exciting because they're looking at how Bitcoin can be used in like uh, in curtailment, like solar or wind, or like how how it can complement battery in the renewable uh, grid overall, or like could, could it bring on? Um, infrastructure, like new power plants without having to wait for a connection to the grid, right? Like there's all these possibilities, like how to balance those negative price signals with mining, like all of that. But it's all based off of models. But here we have a real life experiment. This is the sandbox where Bitcoin is actually doing something with renewable energy here in Texas. And we have access to the mining companies like you know, we've, we've talked with Sean Connell, uh, Troy and I, like, at, at Lanciem. Like, we can get, we can, we are a community. Like, we're all connected in Bitcoin. It's not, we're not so many degrees away from each other where we couldn't get this data and do this actual work. All right,
2: but listen, uh, Sean Connell, was he the guy that Nick Carter retweeted the other day? Yes. I'm yeah, sure. he was. All right, well, listen, like, I I'm I'm going to say this with high confidence <laughs> that after this interview, you can go and do this because... F- finding 30000 is easy, and if no one would help it, I'll just fucking pay. I'll give you that money. Oh. We can put you on the payroll of the podcast for wow. six months if you can go and do this. If you want to do it, then once we're finished, we'll just talk about it afterwards. But yes, so this should this should be done. I think the Bitcoin Mining Council would probably appreciate this work.
0: Yeah, I've been talking with Troy about getting in contact with them to get a hold of their data and to get in contact with their miners because we've been looking at Alex DeVries' research and then, you know, his he is the number one generator of Bitcoin energy fud. I consider him my arch enemist, uh, arch nemesis, because he and I are both PhD candidates, but but we have come from different backgrounds. He's a central banker, and I'm a actual physicist, <laughs> so I'm a scientist, and he's a central banker who's writing all this fud, and he writes like these really terrible, lazy uh, uh, journal pieces that get published in a in a in a journal called Jewel. It's it's a low impact Uh, Journal and it's, it's like, almost like a magazine article. With he hasn't put a lot of emphasis or there's like not a lot of like academic rigor going into his research, and there's a lot of assumptions that he's making. And then he qualifies them in his papers, right? He's like, well, maybe this, maybe this. But then it gets picked up by the news. Of
2: course it does, because they want this like, stuff. And ah, it's
0: like, it's dirtier than ever. And then they quote him, and he's like saying like, oh, yeah, those miners are gaslighting me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is insane.
2: Well, listen, you're going to be able to do this now. So that's fine. So um, we'll talk about that afterwards. Uh, okay, so that's the paper you want to do. But like, what are the, what are the solutions? What is the, Yeah, what, yeah, going back what to What should that. be the energy mix? Where okay. should it be coming from?
0: Yeah, so we definitely need to electrify everything as much as possible because you, uh, uh, that's a lot more efficient on the energy
2: side. Like cars.
0: Yeah, like cars, but also our homes, heating. Uh, everything that we that isn't run on electricity right now, we should trans, tra- transition to electricity.
2: I think we're going to struggle with planes.
0: Planes is going to take a little while, yes. Yeah. Yes, but, but there are some experiments going on there, so we need more investment in that
2: mm-hmm.
0: but we also need a shift in the way society works and part of that is like is again that we have these really bad incentives and the way that uh, the economy works is like this like economic growth idea like you have to keep growing you have to keep growing your business has to keep growing, your profits have to keep growing, because you have to keep up with inflation, right? Because there's the there's always you know the, the money printing a- aspect of it. That's a problem.
2: I think this is the area you're going to really struggle with winning hearts and minds. Yeah. I think changing the energy mix is doable because it doesn't affect people's lives as long as they can have energy. So they can drive their car, as long as they can heat their house, You know, uh, trying to get people to the idea that you're going to shift society away from growth and the importance of GDP. That's a toughie.
0: Yeah, it's tough. But I think Bitcoin is useful in that because of the monetary cap. And so Bitcoin can grow in a way that could possibly track our 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 like energy needs over time. And this is not so detached from something called degrowth, which is a, a big deal in, in the climate movement. And for the first time, actually, in this recent IPCC report, they actually mentioned degrowth.
2: What's degrowth?
0: So degrowth is basically it's this idea where uh, certain aspects of the economy have to stop growing because their the resource use is is too much like it's it's very wasteful like like for example like fast fashion. Yeah. And you in order to grow the economy you also need to use energy. Now it's not really a question of whether we have enough energy, right? Like energy abundance like obviously we have the sun and we have renewable energy and it's really a matter of getting these resources online but the way that we use these resources is incredibly destructive because the whole goal is for uh, maximizing profit so you have to you have to disentangle that you have to you have to you have to break that connection and the the best um, idea that i can give for bitcoiners really is is jeff booths uh, sorry jeff booths uh, book and his ideas about deflationary economics and and uh, deflationary technology. And I think that the stuff that he's talked about aligns very well with the ideas from degrowth. And again, like going back to these ideas of localism and that can actually... I think that's actually really important because this the level of consumption that we have in the West has really damaged other parts of the world like the in the global south like our plastics right we ship them off they're supposed to be recycled they get shipped off to to like south asia or whatever yeah. and what do they end up like they don't really recycle them if nobody's buying them so they end up just being piled up in their countries or and Lynn Alden has talked about this like how people how countries ship off their like high energy or their carbon intensive uh, industries overseas to make it look like they're actually reducing emissions. So we're just, we as the rich West or nations are just polluting these other places with our, our uh, desire for things that just can be easily replaced, right? So we have to change how we operate in society. That's really important. And I think that that obviously is going to take a long time to do that. But I think that Bitcoin incentives are are aligned with that process, and people when you talk when I talk to people in Bitcoin, like they have they already they're really on board with that. Like people are like, yeah, I don't like the way our society works. I don't like that we're so consumerist. We, we used to have products that lasted a long time. That and is
2: a, that is a universal truth amongst I find uh, Bitcoiners is that this. Consumption society is bullshit. Is it? Is a fiat?
0: Yeah. Yeah. A exactly. Of fiat. Yeah. It's like bad fiat incentives. Yeah. So degrowth is really aligned with that. The, my my thing is like, how do I get the degrowthers to understand Bitcoin, so that we can all be on the same page? Because unfortunately, some people in degrowth think that MMT is the answer, which is which is not. It which is not. Is not. They, they're completely missing a whole other aspect here, right? You know, oh, sure. Yeah, maybe we, we'll have a jobs guarantee, maybe. Uh, but, but what about, like, all those wars? That, that money printing is still paying for that. How are you going to deal with that? Like, the United States military is the biggest carbon emitter, right? The biggest yes, polluter.
2: That, that came out of, uh, what's her name? Abby, Abby Martin. Abby Martin. The she Empire was on Rogo. France. She's got a documentary. Is it out?
0: I think it might be out Can you now? look it up,
2: Danny? Yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. she's got a document. Um, I have mixed views on Abby. I think mm-hmm. she's quite cool. Uh, uh, I liked her documentary regarding what happened in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got a documentary. She claims the... Earth's the, Greatest Enemy. Yeah, is that out yet? Um, I can't see. The trailer is, I'm not sure the full, full documentary Yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see that. And... Um, uh, You've not really answered my question on nuclear.
0: Oh, nuclear. Oh yeah, let's talk about nuclear. I also a- want to talk about coal, but let's talk about nuclear. Go ahead, ask me again. Do
2: I just like are you a fan of nuclear? Do you think oh. we should be investing in nuclear?
0: Yeah. I I think it's necessary. I don't okay. I mean, I there was a lot of hope for nuclear in the 40s and I, my dad had a book. It was like 1943 almanac. I remember looking at it one day when I was younger and in there Everything was about the atomic age. It was like our cars were going to be run on nuclear. It was going to be in our homes. Like this was this was cutting edge. This was the future. Obviously, there's risks. There's risks with dealing with the waste. That's important to be addressed. Uh, there's risks of like whether the country can't, or whether like that uranium can be used to make bombs later on. And then it's also it's like very expensive, so it's never going to be. I don't think it's ever going to be cheaper than renewables, and and so that's something that we have to understand. And and also it takes a long time to build uh, a nuclear facility, at least a big one. Maybe you can have like these small reactors, which people are talking out around a lot.
2: These generation four reactors.
0: Yeah, any new te- newer technology is going has got to be safer than yeah. the previous. Uh, plants, right? So that's something to to be optimistic about. But I, I I think that again, there's always caveats around these things, and we have to understand that there's there's always risks. And and if we go back, you know, going back to talking about regulations and and who cleans up the mess, like that's that's a that's a big problem that has to be really dealt with and out in the open with lots of transparency. But I think we do need it. I think if we could do it right, I mean, that'd be great. Like, like the yeah. Mars Rover has a nuclear reactor on it. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, it, it makes scientific sense. We okay. just have to be safe about it. And if that power plant, plant doesn't explode, right, you know, great. That means that the de- the civil engineers who designed it, designed it to withstand a war. And if your nuclear plants can, des- can be designed to withstand a war, then we're doing pretty well in, in that regard. So I'm hopeful. I, I'm hopeful about it. I think we do need it it will be easier to to manage the intermittency of of the renewable power plants. there's the alternative is is hydrogen, which is F- fission No no like hydrogen gas okay that would be produced by renewables so but that's also that's something in the future that's not ready yet. obviously nuclear. We know how to do that, but the but it's going to take us a long time. It's like Each of these plants going to take like a decade, and we already have solar and wind, and solar is the cheapest uh, renewable energy on the market right now. So we should be bringing on as much of that as possible.
2: Okay, and what do you say to people who uh, think there's a lot of waste in the production of solar and wind production?
0: Yeah, those are good. these are all good points, but again, we don't... Our society's incentives are messed up. So, how do we address that? We have to address the whole picture.
2: And is it like uh, which is the worst scenario? Like, okay, we can accept e-waste over climate change.
0: Yeah, for now, I so think we. Is have. that
2: considered e-waste? The uh, turbines.
0: Um, I mean, it's not e-waste since like they're not electronic, but it's like a manufacturing waste, I guess.
2: So, I mean, whatever happens, whether it's renewables, we're going to have manufacturing yeah. waste. Whether it's nuclear, we're yeah, do, do we do we ship all that off? To
0: I mean, I I don't know how how any of that's disposed of. Yeah. Like these these pl- these panels, they they have a lifetime a lifespan of about thirty years. Right. So these are things that we have to deal with and figure out over the next thirty years. Of course, some of them will go bad in the meantime. Obviously, I don't I don't know a lot about how they're dealt with when they're disposed. I guess some of them get buried in the ground. I I don't know. I don't really know. I'm just speculating, but but yeah, we do need to deal with that. Anything that we do, anything we do in our environment has a negative effect.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We just have to manage it. We have to figure out how to manage these these negative externalities. Because I build a home, well, I just disrupted the environment, right? I I like probably built my house on top of an ant colony or something, right? Like. I damaged I did some minor damage there. But I need to live in a murderer. home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: it right? was a massacre of those ants.
0: <laughs> oh God.
2: Well, so what about coal then? You said you coal. wanted to talk about coal. Yeah,
0: coal. Okay, so coal is a big is a big Bitcoin FUD. And every time a coal plant comes up gets brought back to life with a, with Bitcoin mining, I get a, an email like uh, did you see this? What do you have to say about that from friends? You know the, who are skeptical about Bitcoin.
2: It's your fault, Margo. It's
0: my fault. I'm, I'm uh, working against climate, uh, the climate movement. I, I've lost my way, <laughs> and and then I have to go and I have to spend hours digging through these stories trying to figure out what's really going on. And the thing with coal again is bad fiat incentives, bad government incentives, and. Not only that, it's a just transition issue in some parts. Like uh, where was this this recent coal plant in Montana? It was Beowulf teamed up with Marathon.
2: Yes. Yeah. I, I remember they brought it back online.
0: Yeah. And so that was a big deal. And the community, some people in the community were upset about it. Okay, but here's the problem. That that power plant was funded through state bonds and it was to, to do repairs on it. And the only way for them to get, or, or for the city or whatever, I guess the city was given the bond. The only way for them to get that money back is through tax revenue. But that, that company that, or utility that was running that coal plant had not paid taxes since like 2016 or something. So they went all these years with no tax revenue from them. And then there were people employed at the coal plant, let's say like a hundred people and now once that power plant shuts down where do they go find work so that's a that's that's yeah. a just transition like if we are going to do this transition right we have to take care of the coal workers we have to take care of these small towns because what's going to happen to them if they have no revenue they need something to replace it and nobody is dealing with that the federal government isn't dealing with that they're being completely ignored and And so what option do they have if in this society and in this economy, if you don't have money, your only alternative is to starve and become homeless, what option do you have but to bring your coal plant back? And I think that's really what happened there, was that there was a deal made because coal is not, uh, right now, especially with more regulations on coal, it's not economically viable, it's more expensive than renewables. And then you have to deal with all, like paying for like the coal, like how to deal with the coal waste and stuff. It just, these companies end up going bankrupt. So one way to bring it back is obviously with mining. And so that's what happened, but it's a complicated story. It's not that Bitcoin mining is bringing back coal plants. Cause there's only really a handful that, that where this has happened in the United States. And each one has its own unique story. It's that there are really bad incentives that are built into the government and, and uh, that's making it possible for these things to happen. Uh, or, or it's because of government neglect of people. Going all, you know, oops, going all the way back to the beginning of the story with Occupy and the financial, re- you know, the Great Recession and all of that people being left out and the abandonment of the working class, in particular the white working class in rural areas, like this is, this is what is happening. And this is a a prime example of of how that is happening and how these people are really just looking for a lifeline. So in a way, you you can say that Bitcoin is providing a lifeline for these people. Is it the right lifeline? Like, is it right to bring back this coal plant because of the carbon emissions? Of course, obviously we don't want to put more carbon out into the atmosphere, any more CO2 into the atmosphere, because the more CO2 we put in, the more problems we have going down the line and the more our, the, the average warming of the planet increases. So we don't want that. But at the same time, you have a human issue here where people are in trouble and we're not helping them. So how, how can we help them? Like maybe maybe a UBI is necessary for coal workers for now. Like, the, you know, a lot of people on the left are not really fans of UBI for various reasons. And they prefer a-, a And the right. And the right. And, and they prefer a federal jobs guarantee. But you may, these people may have to leave their home to go take that job, whatever job that the government might guarantee them. Mm-hmm. Of course, that, that's better than nothing, but why not just give them some money so that at least they can stay home and, and keep their families together? Because once you start splitting up families, right? Because now you got to go work somewhere else, like in the big city or something like that's, I don't think that that's really good for, for the cohesion of that family unit. But I mean that's of course speculation. On my part, yeah. obviously I'm not a sociolo- I'm not so sociologist. I'm not, you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. I'm just a scientist. But it seems to me that why not just let people why not just let these co-workers stay home, pay them to stay home and have that money that they need until like until something else comes into town. Maybe the, there's like some state initiative that brings a new manufacturing facility into town, which is something that happened at the Navajo a coal plant. And they brought in uh, a manufacturer of, of mattress, uh, of homes, like f- prefabricated homes to take over that plant. Okay. So these things can happen, but really the state needs to be involved and they're being ignored. And so in that case, yeah, Bitcoin, it looks bad for Bitcoin, but actually it's more complicated. And all of these coal stories are, are very similar. Like with Stronghold, that's a coal waste remediation plant. And the... The Energy Justice Network was had opposed any of this type of coal uh, coal waste plants in Pennsylvania, but their alternative was something called seagrass, I think, and they were like, you know, this is more natural. You can just let the grass take over, and it'll uh, it'll like fortify the soil and Things like that, it'll be better and you know it'll look nicer. But there's no real scientific studies on this. I went and and dig through the literature trying to find research on this type of grass as coal re- remediation, and I found uh, next to nothing. There was like one article that said that it that only the invasive species on on this one uh, like uh, area where there was coal waste. It was only invasive invasive species that were taking hold there not like any of like the native plants. So that's a that's a new problem, right? So then the other issue is that these piles of coal waste can spontaneously catch on fire and they're leaching in, into the water, they're leaching into the soil and, and they're contaminating groundwater which is a major problem. It's it's very easy to contaminate groundwater. It's very it's not that easy to get that contamination out of the groundwater. There's like there's research that's done on just how to do that. And I know professors at the, in my department who work on that and it's not easy. And that groundwater is not renewable, quote unquote, in the sense of a human lifespan. Like it takes you know, hundreds to thousands of years to recharge or refill those groundwater aquifers, right? So you don't want that pollution to get in there. And that's like heavy metals and things like that. So the alternative, their only viable alternative are these waste coal plants. And that's what Stronghold has been doing. They're running a waste coal plant. And they're not meant to be profitable, but they're meant they're meant to operate on the margins because they're really remediation. And so these guys who are running Stronghold, I, I heard them speak with Nick Carter, interviewed them. And to, I mean, they give a really compelling case and they they're... They seem very sincere in what they're doing. I'm really interested in seeing uh, some of their studies to see like, because they're claiming like a 90% reduction in certain emissions like sulfur dioxides, which is a very heavy, uh, uh, it's a very strong greenhouse gas it, it, that is stronger like over a, over a certain timescale compared to carbon dioxide, right? So you don't want a lot of that emitted, but if they're claiming 90% reduction, that's that's massive, that's mm. a really big deal. So. This right now is our only option to deal with this because you're polluting the environment, and you're causing people to develop uh, um, health conditions, cancer, and then it's they catch on fire spontaneously. So now you're now emitting CO2, just like burning it with nothing, no regulation on that. At least coal plants had some, right? So this is what I mean. Like everything we do has these or is a compromise, like we're damaged, we, we have damage no matter what we do. And with these coal plants and the coal waste has been around for like, you know, like hundred years or something like this is damage that's done. Like we already did this damage. We have to figure out how to, how to deal with it in the least harmful way possible. And this right now is the only way we have to deal with this. And it's, I think this is really hard for some environmentalists to understand because they really want to see a natural way to solve this problem.
2: Well, our, our mutual friend mm-hmm. Troy Cross has a—he has an idea.
0: Yeah. Well, with the, his his hash rate war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love I love I love Troy. I, I call it the hash rate war. <laughs> like let's have it. Let's have this green hash rate war where we like push out all of uh, the fossil fuel dependent um, mining. But, but I I think it's great and I I. In fact, I was like, I read his, one of the first things I interact, when I first times I interacted with Troy was over that paper. yeah. And I was like, oh, Troy, let's do a solar farm. And then we can could, we could sell hash rate on, with our solar farm. And then, but anyway, that was one of my pie in the sky ideas. But then of course now we're, we, we work together at BPI. But yeah, he's got a really fantastic idea. He and Andrew Bailey, also at BPI. And absolutely, it sounds like, since his last interview, he's gotten a lot of people who are interested in trying to make this happen. And I know it's been talked a lot on Twitter, so it's really exciting to see where that goes. The more, pe- the more people who hear about it, especially those who have the money to make things like that happen. But
2: well, he's coming back on with Nick Carter to discuss it again. Oh,
0: perfect. Oh, that's yeah. going to be exciting. Yeah. yeah. yeah, That's great.
2: Wow. Um, <laughs> is there anything I've not asked you about that you wish I had? Ooh, We've um, covered it a lot.
0: Oh, I really, no, I think, I think that's most of everything. (laughs) There's a lot that we can talk about, obviously, but I really wanted to, I really wanted to mention the coal thing because there's a lot of FUD around that, but it's very complicated on the incentives. Obviously subsidies are a major problem. They just funnel banks, money towards uh, these industries and I just hope that people who are listening are a little more... can be a little more open-minded about climate change because it is happening, even if you don't believe it's happening. It is. And it can lead to... uh, economic grief for the entire society, not just... and And it's not just for the global South, for us too. Like, every time a town burns down, In Canada or in California or wherever, because of these these wildfires that are getting bigger and bigger, like that's that's a massive economic loss. So if you only care about economics and money on that end, well, that's really bad. (laughs) Let's
2: let's change the incentives then.
0: Yeah, we have to change incentives.
2: Um, If people want to follow you or read any of your work. Where should they go? You're going to declare your name right now.
0: Yeah, I'm Jin Erso on Twitter. And uh, my my previous writings were under a name called Magus Pervalen, And you can find that on my Twitter, hand, Twitter page, Twitter profile. I have it linked there to my Medium articles. I've also written an article about CBDCs from a sort of like a progressive perspective countering Yanis Varoufakis. So I, I have that up there as well. And then, uh, of course, I'm with the Bitcoin Policy Institute, and we'll be Troy and I will have a white paper out soon there, and hopefully an op-ed soon <laughs> once this war calms down. Uh, yeah, so you can find me Jenner. So just like the movie, the Star Wars movie, but with you, on the name.
2: Well, this was fascinating. So yeah. thank you for coming on. Um, when this comes out, I would probably recommend don't go and read the YouTube comments. Oh yeah, <laughs> there will be good ones. There will be some. I've got some crazy people who follow me on YouTube, and there will be some shitty comments. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You're
2: probably used to this.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's okay. All it's right,
2: the well, internet. listen, thank you. Oh, we we will you. do this again. Uh, you're a fantastic guest. I can't believe this is a you only your second podcast, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, just good luck with everything. Go and start this. Pro- well, basically. Once we've uh, finished up, we'll talk about this because we will have you funded so you can go and do this piece of research. Uh, even if people 100% disagree with you on climate change, I still think those people will want to read that report because it's it, like, it suits everybody to know about what's happening. So, uh, yes, we will get that funded. Go do it and stay in touch, and we'll talk about this again sometime in the future.
0: All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Peter.
1: No, thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.